listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. Article 50 of the Treaty on European Union gives member nations 730 days, that's two years, to negotiate a country's withdrawal. With just 148 days left, the countdown clock is ticking. Much of the attention throughout the negotiating process has focused on Northern Ireland's 310-mile border with the Republic of Ireland, with the goal being the avoidance of a hard border where trade and people have been able to flow freely, maintaining peace in an area where there has not always been the case. To tell us about the current situation and the impact that Brexit may have is Ireland's ambassador to the United States, Daniel Mulhall. In Washington for just over a year, the ambassador's career has carried him from the European Union in Brussels to Edinburgh, where he was Ireland's first consul general. He also served as his country's ambassador to Germany and Malaysia, and prior to coming to D.C., as Brexit was debated and voted on, Mr. Mulhall held the position of Ireland's ambassador to the U.K. It's great to have you here in Dallas. Thank you very much. Well, this is a very interesting time because as I was getting ready for your visit, I saw just so many articles and it appears that Brexit, while it has always been in the news, it certainly seems to be more at the forefront. And I saw that your Minister for Foreign Affairs and Trade, Simon Coveney, expressed confidence that a deal on Britain's withdrawal might be occurring by November 21st. I certainly hope so. We've been long in favor of reaching agreement and moving on to the next phase. The next phase is the negotiation of a future relationship between the United Kingdom and the European Union, which is of vital importance to Ireland because of our strong trading links with the UK, which we want to see preserved into the future. We don't want to see our trade curtailed by a difficult relationship between the EU and the UK. But the more immediate priority for us has to be maintaining the open border, the invisible border on the island of Ireland. And with that in mind, the negotiations are currently focused on how to guarantee that no matter what happens in the future negotiations between the UK and the European Union, there will not be a hard border on the island of Ireland. What are the main sticking points right now? It's fairly straightforward. Everyone has agreed there shouldn't be a hard border on the island of Ireland. We don't want one. British government doesn't want one. The European Union doesn't want one. The problem is how to achieve that outcome. The British government has said that they would plan to achieve an open border in Ireland by having an agreement between the EU and the UK that would avoid the need for customs controls or border controls between the UK and the EU overall, and therefore would avoid them on the island of Ireland. We say, that'd be great, we'd love that. But we need a guarantee that if that doesn't work out, there's a backstop, an insurance policy, to guarantee us that there will never be border controls on the island of Ireland. The British agreed last December to a backstop, to the principle of a backstop. They reaffirmed that agreement in March of this year. But now the European Commission has put that political agreement and turned it into a draft legal agreement, a legally binding agreement between mm -hmm. the UK and the European Union. And the British have had some difficulty with that proposal. Well, let me ask you yeah, this. The difficulty with, the, with, the legally, with turning that political agreement into a legally binding agreement between the European Union and the UK, which would apply in all circumstances 
unless there's a, an EU-UK agreement that makes it unnecessary. Well, let me ask you this, because I, I hear what you're saying, that you don't want there to be a hard border, obviously. But The Guardian carried a report just a few days ago, which has been denied by your government, that there is ongoing preparation and contingency plans to harden the border. Can you deny that that's not taking place? I do not believe that our government would ever be willing to uh, have a hard border on the island of Ireland. That is, a, that is a matter of the highest principle from the Irish government's point of view. Because we understand that a hard border in Ireland would be economically disruptive, of course, that would be. Sure. And for the people living in the border, it would be very disruptive. But it would also be politically risky because the open border in Ireland is one of the supports that maintains the peace process in place. And while I would never claim that uh, uh, if you have a hard border, there'll be a return to violence in Ireland, that would not be right. That would be um, not the right thing to say, and I don't believe that would be the case. But it would pose a risk to peace because it would remove one of the things that maintains support for the peace process. Because the open border in Ireland is one of the dividends of the peace process, Absolutely. from the point of view of northern nationalists in particular, who, who value especially the open border between north and south in Ireland. Did you have a chance this morning to see Sebastian Malaby's piece in the Washington Post? I did not. Sebastian Malaby, I'm sure yes. you know, Paul Volcker, a senior fellow for international economics at the Council on Foreign Relations, who used to write for the Financial Times. He wrote in the op-ed that there is a clear case, in his view, for a, for a, a, a second referendum because really what he argues is that no one is really happy about where this is going. Do you think there's any chance at all, would you assign any percentage that there might be a second referendum? We would love to see Britain remaining in the European Union. That would be the ideal outcome from an Irish point of view. Uh, if Britain were to decide they wanted to stay in the Union, we'd be very happy. Um, but of course, that's not something that we can influence in sure. any way. That would be a decision for the British government and the British people. But I think that if there was to be a signal in that direction, I believe that other European countries, and Ireland included, would make it easy for Britain to, to remain in the Union. It wouldn't be straightforward, but I think it would be done. I think there'd be an openness to it. My problem is that I, I can't see how you get from we are, where we are today which, as you say, there's a lot of discontent around... Because uh, Article Britain. 50 really doesn't address that, how you bring someone back in true, that has true. said that they... But I do believe that if there was a willingness on the part of the British government to hold a second referendum, European Union countries would be willing you to You could defer, have a short courtship and people would get to back defer, together. Uh, the uh, Article 50 sure. and prolong the negotiations so as to give time for Britain to sort itself out. The problem is that between now and the end of March, we're talking about little, uh, just you know, five months, so... Right. Um, it's hard to see how you could get uh, an agreement to have a second referendum, hold a referendum before time is run out. You'd have out. to postpone that. So too. I think you'd have to. I, I think so. I mean, so but the first thing that would have to happen is that there would have to be a political decision in Britain to hold another referendum. And I, at the moment, don't see that happening. Uh, you would need a, an election probably first, with one party going into the election promising to have a second referendum if they won the election, and then if they won the election, they would see themselves having a mandate to hold a second referendum. We're a long way from that. So I don't think it's worth fretting over second referendum or whatever. I think it's much more important to get down to figuring out how to make Brexit work for everyone, how to make it a sensible, pragmatic Brexit 
therefore, in my view, a soft Brexit that mm -hmm. would keep the UK closely aligned to the European Union, albeit no longer a member. Let me ask you about a, another country you know well, and that's Germany. Yes. Last week, Chancellor Merkel uh, made an announcement that she's essentially stepping away from politics later. How does that change the landscape on Brexit? I don't believe it changes the landscape on Brexit. I think it changes the landscape for Germany and for the European Union. In my opinion, Chancellor Merkel has been a tremendously positive force in Europe for the last, well, getting on for 20 years now. Yeah. Uh, certainly during the um, global economic crisis and its aftermath, she was uh, one of the rocks that kept the European Union stable and kept it moving forward and dealt with the issues that arose. Now, not everyone was happy with the way things worked out. There are certainly a lot of people in Ireland who feel aggrieved at the extent to which the Irish taxpayer was forced to guarantee and to pay for the failings of, of the Irish banks that were part of a, of a European banking system. But nonetheless, I think um, support for EU membership in Ireland has gone up in recent years, and that is proof that, um, for Irish people at least, the European Union represents the future. And with Chancellor Merkel no longer in the picture um, in a little while, um, we don't know when she'll leave exactly, but you know she's clearly signaled her intention to right. withdraw from uh, political life in the coming years. Uh, that will remove a pillar of the European Union and someone who has been fundamental to the European Union uh, for uh, more than a decade now. Of course, there will be new leaders in Germany. Europe needs France and Germany really to be be strong to provide leadership because if the French and the Germans can agree, very often there's a basis for a more general agreement. Uh, well, we'll see what Macron can do. Yeah, across let the me, union. I, I mean, yeah, Macron's strong at the moment. Obviously, you know, Merkel may be on the way out, but I hope we will see a strong leadership in both France and Germany and in other parts of Europe as well because the European Union is fundamentally a political project. Sure. And if you have strong political leadership, you can get things done. If you don't, everything else falls apart. Well, let's get back to Ireland. Sometimes when a door closes, other doors open. And Ireland has been able to, I think, in some ways, take advantage of Brexit. Are you seeing companies that may be closing their doors yeah. in London and moving to Dublin? We don't like Brexit and we want to minimize uh, the downsides of Brexit for Ireland. We recognize that there are also some upsides. And one of the upsides is that when Ireland becomes the only English-speaking country in the European Union, we will become a more attractive location for U.S. companies in Europe than we are today. Already we have 750 U.S. companies investing in Ireland, employing about 150,000 people. We expect that number to rise as Ireland becomes the only English-speaking country and a bridgehead into Europe for many uh, U.S. companies. Overall, we think Brexit is still a bad thing, but there is an upside. For example, our central bank governor revealed there about two or three weeks ago that currently the central bank is dealing with inquiries from 100 or more financial services companies hmm. who are looking to be licensed, to be regulated from Ireland so that they can operate throughout the European Union. These are obviously companies that are currently operating in Britain and are now worried that they may not be able to do so in the future and operate in Europe from Britain and are therefore looking for alternative locations in Europe and Ireland is one of the favoured locations. Now we won't get all hundreds of those companies but a certain percentage of them will come to Ireland and that will give us some compensation for the losses that may be sustained elsewhere in the relationship between Ireland and the UK. Well, I was pleased and I have to say somewhat surprised to see that Ireland is the 12th largest trading partner for Dallas-Fort Worth and American Airlines announced a few months ago That's that right. they're going to initiate for the first time a direct yep. non-stop flight to Dublin. And that'll be wonderful. It'll be great to have a chance for Texans to fly directly to Dublin and it'll be the first time ever I think that will bring a lot more Texans to enjoy the delights of Ireland as a tourism destination 
for golf and hiking and enjoying the countryside and the hospitality that's so uh, richly available in Ireland. It will also, I think, facilitate business links because uh, having to go through another route does make the journey to Ireland that bit more onerous. I think with a direct flight, you will see a lot more Texas businesses looking to, to operate in Ireland, and you'll see a lot more Irish businesses looking to see whether they can develop their businesses here in Texas. Well, as you know, we consider our airport certainly the economic engine of North Texas, and there's so many companies that have I was moved out there here. today, and it was impressive, yeah, yeah. Let me ask you about an election that you had in your country just a few days ago. One of the things I was reading is that it was an example of a sense of a quiet revolution that in a sense, by outlawing blasphemy, yeah. you're beginning to see a more liberal society. And I wanted to ask, is this a symptom or a sign that the youth are moving away to some degree from the Catholic Church, where the Catholic Church has been such a strong pillar? Well, I don't think that would be an adequate explanation. I, I think that, uh, yes, we've had a, a progressive wave in Ireland over the last three years. We voted in 2015 in favor of same-sex marriage. We voted earlier this year to liberalize our abortion laws. Mm -hmm. We uh, removed provisions for blasphemy in the Constitution, which were never used, by the way, so it was always, it was an old-fashioned kind of leftover element in the Constitution. But good to clean these used. things up. Yeah, good to clean it up. <laughs> and, and, and people in Ireland seem genuinely determined to have a more progressive, open, outward-looking society. I think most Irish people would still regard themselves as Catholic, but perhaps no longer maybe, you know, see their approach to public affairs as necessarily being, being shaped by the church to which they belong. I also think that, of course, the biggest factor in Ireland in the last 50 years has been the educational revolution. Hmm. Remember that I, my first year at high school was the first year when high school was free to all Irish uh, high school students. So that, was a, that expanded enormously the number of Irish people that received a high school education. And then five years later, it expanded the numbers going to university because a certain number of those like myself who um, came through the high school system then wanted to go to university five years later. And uh, I was a generation of people, um, I was the first one in my family ever to go to university. So that's changed Ireland enormously. And today, for example, about 60% uh, of our school leavers, uh, high school leavers, go to a third level educational institution. And of those who are between 25 and 45, about 50% have a third level qualification. So we are now genuinely one of the, the best qualified peoples in Europe, well, the most highly educated peoples in Europe. That's uh, the reason why you're getting so many companies and this become, moving there. And in the past, of course, that would have been a drawback because we would have been educating people to export them to other countries. Right. And America would have benefited from the skills of these people acquired in Ireland. Now, with our economic transformation, with our membership of the European Union, more and more Irish people are able to stay, live and work in Ireland. Many of them will seek to go abroad for a few years, but then come back to come Ireland back. and bring with them the skills they've acquired abroad and help to transform our economy. Well, I want to thank you so much for being our guest on Global IQ Minute. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys in 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com.